Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I am the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And I uh, just invite you to come with us as we follow after Jesus together. Uh, this week is the second week of our series called Shadows, in which we are wrestling with some of the doubts and the questions that come up as we follow Jesus. They come up in, in the midst of our faith. And so uh, as a part of that process, I want to point out to you some great resources that are available uh, for you. Last week, we talked about doubt and uh, walking through doubt as a, uh, and handling doubts. And there's this book that I want to recommend. This one is called After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda. It's a great book. It's thoughtful and nuanced and insightful. And if you are struggling with doubts, if you have questions, you're like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but I... I'm struggling. This is a great book. I mean, pick it up off of Amazon or wherever you can get that. It's a good book. And then when it comes to the topic that we're talking about today, about violence or the apparent violence of God in the Old Testament uh, and topics of judgment and hell, uh, this is the book that I'd like to recommend to you. It's called The Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, it's by a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler. And it's great. In fact, much of what I'm going to share to you today is based upon his research. It's insightful, again, and, and engaging, easy to read. If you want to go deeper on these topics, I would also uh, recommend that book to you. And then along the way, we're also going to, uh, as we talked about last week, we're going to have opportunity for you to send in questions. And so if you have questions uh, about what we talk about today or anything along the, the, the way in this series, fire them off. You can use the QR code. Uh, there's a box in the lobby if you want to use pencil and paper. Write your questions. And at the end of the series, we're going to grab them all together and we're going to sit down. We're going to spend time together just talking through here are your questions and, um, and, and wrestling with those things. Today, today we're going to tackle uh, the question of the apparent violence of God in the Old Testament. Now, if you've been reading through the Bible in a year with us, and many of you are, you've already sort of read past these passages. They, they come up in the part of the history of Israel when they've, uh, they've, God has led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and, and into the wilderness. And now as they stand at the, at the, the threshold of the promised land, at the, at the threshold of entering into the land of Canaan, these kinds of verses begin to pop up in the Bible. For instance, this one. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And then, and then later when you read about the attack of the Israelites on the city of Jericho, Joshua says this, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And a little later, this one. 12,000 men and women fell that day. All the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. And then finally, this one. So Joshua subdued the whole region including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings, he left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And when you read those, those are harsh. I mean, totally destroyed, left nothing breathing, put to, get to, to the sword men and women, young and old. I mean, those are the kind of passages that when we read them in the Bible, raise all kinds of questions, don't they? 
Like, how can you believe in a God who commanded the genocidal slaughter of the Canaanite people? And if that's what God approves of, doesn't that show that, that, that one of the, the key forces of, of violence and war in this world today is religion? And haven't there been enough holy wars fought by people who think that their religion is right and everyone else is wrong? I mean, those are good questions. And when you read the account of what happened in the book of Joshua, it, it sounds like textbook holy war, right? There's these people, the, the Canaanites, who are living in this peaceful, idyllic land, minding their own business, when out of the desert appears this massive nomadic nation, the Israelites. And they look across the river into this land flowing with milk and honey with all these resources. And they decide that they want it. And the only thing standing in their way is this group of indigenous people who are living in the land. And, and so what they do is they enter the land, this powerful nation. They steamroll across it. They use their superior military technology. They, they use their machine guns to, or the, the, the equivalent to, to literally mow down the people in the land. Full-on ethnic cleansing, genocide. And in fact, afterwards, they brag about it, that they, that they destroyed the people, all who breathed in the land. And then, and then they go on to justify it by saying that their God told them that they should do this very thing. I mean, that's, that's textbook holy war. That, that's, that's classic of what happened in the ancient world. I mean, the Greeks did it, the Romans did it, the Chinese, the Aztec, the Inca. I mean, they all used the exact same playbook. So how can it be that God would not only stand behind his people who would do something like that, but that he would command it? Well, it turns out that God would never stand behind his people if they did that, and he would never command it. What God commanded and what the Israelites did, when we look carefully at it, was not a slight variation on the ancient playbook of holy war. Rather, it was totally different, radically different. So let's, let's go and look more carefully and understand what is going on here. The first thing that we need to realize is this, that Israel is not some mighty nation that simply roll, rolls in with their machine guns and steamrolls this, this poor, innocent, defenseless people called the Canaanites. It's actually the exact opposite. You have to remember that the people of Israel were a ragtag band of slaves that had been enslaved for 400 years and now wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. When they arrived in the wilderness, there was no... No one there to give the military training. There was no stockpile of AK-47 machine guns ready for them to pick up and, and go to war with. Instead, all that they had is what they could scrounge up along the way through the wilderness, which is very different than what the Canaanites had. Their weapons were advanced state-of-the-art. The Canaanites had chariots. They were like tanks against the pistols of the Israelites. And the, and the Canaanites had cavalry, horse-mounted riders who would wreak havoc among the ground forces of Israel. And the kind of swords and spears that the Canaanites had were far better in quality and in distance than what the Israelites had. You see, there was a profound difference in their military capabilities between Israel and the Canaanites. And Israel came out on the short end of that. 
Plus the Canaanites had defenses. Heavily fortified outposts like Jericho with high walls and, and protective rivers and they had steel armor. The Israelites, on the other hand, were out in the fields. They had the same ratty clothes that they'd worn for the last 40 years in the wilderness. And they had to cross this massive river that protected the land. And Canaan, Canaan was a land of giants. I mean, they were well fed. They, they lived in a land flowing with milk and honey, whereas the Israelites had wandered through the wilderness eating basically prison food. Not quite, but bread, manna from heaven and, and water. Canaanites were healthy and strong. And even in terms of population, you know, Israel was a small nation in a world where population made a huge difference because the people of Israel got a late start. God called Abraham out of the other nations long after they had all long started. And even then, his people spent 400 years down in Egypt and they had experienced genocide there because Pharaoh at one point ordered all of the, the, the male babies that were born to be killed. So the people of Israel were a tiny, small nation compared to the vast nations of Canaan. So as they stood on the border of Canaan, as the people of Israel arrived there, they were this tiny, little, weak nation, virtually powerless, standing on the threshold of the powerful, well-established, well-defended nation of the Canaanites. So, first thing you just need to understand is this is not the story of some bullies rolling into town and steamrolling a idyllic, peaceful, defenseless nation. I mean, that Israel would even consider entering the land of Canaan was crazy. It was suicide, unless God does the fighting, right? I mean, this was their, this was their thing. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That was their hope. So they come. God leads his people to the, to the entrance of the land of Canaan to a city called Jericho. It was a heavily fortified military city surrounded by high walls protected by a river. And they come there, this tiny nation, and, and they say, okay, God, you brought us here. Now we're going to enter the land. And so we're waiting for you to give us this brilliant military strategy for what to do about this fortified city. And they wait, and they wait, and finally God tells them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the city seven times blowing trumpets. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the art of warfare, but this is a terrible military strategy. This is like as if God called Canada to invade and take over the United States. And so we waited and he said, okay, what I want you to do is all buy guitars and go and stand on the border and sing a Bob Dylan song, right? It's just a terrible idea. It's crazy. But apparently that's the point. It was so that they would know that it was God was the one, not them, who was doing the real fighting. And unless God shows up, they're doomed. That's kind of the point. There's this famous psalm that says this, be still and know that I am God. It's a great, it's a great verse. We quote it all the time and usually quote it in this context. Like, you know, life is super busy, so you should slow down. You, you should just kind of put aside your cares and your worries and you should just sit for a while and be still 
and rest in God. That, that's how we think of it, but that's actually not what this verse is originally about. This verse is originally a war verse. It comes originally from an experience that the Israelites had when they were escaping Egypt and the Pharaoh had brought his chariots and they were bearing down to destroy the people of Israel. And at that point, Moses tells Israel this, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. Be still. God will fight for you. Sit back and know that I am God, he says. And this becomes the, the theme song for Israel. This, this becomes her battle cry, right? Israel is not this massive nation taking on the empire of the Canaanites. Rather, it's God taking on the empire for the sake of his people. Be still and know that I am God. It's not really so much about your quiet devotions. I mean, it's great if you do that. But it's more a public pro proclamation of God arising to defend the weak and the exploited from those that are powerful that oppose them. The picture in your mind should not be, you know, a monk in a monastery in quiet reflection. Rather, it should be a disabled kid on the, on the playground surrounded by 10 or 12 bullies that are about to beat them up and hearing the voice of his or her father behind them saying, oh no, son, daughter, you just sit back. Let me take care of this for you. I mean, that's, that's the, the picture. Be still and know that I am God. God fights the battles. Because if he doesn't, Israel doesn't stand a chance. So that's the first thing you need to understand about what's happening in this particular story. It isn't a massive, mean army storming poor, defenseless nation and using God to justify their actions. It's the opposite. It's God fighting for the weak and the enslaved and the exploited. But, but that still doesn't answer the question of, of, you know, totally destroy them. Show no mercy. Don't leave anything breathing. I mean, what's the deal there? I mean, that sounds like God is this sort of maniacal commander who loses his marbles and takes a machine gun to an unarmed, conquered village of civilians. Like, God, what, what are you saying? What's going on there? Well, here, here it's important to understand the historical setting of what's going on. It's important to understand that what we're reading about is events that took place 3,500 years ago in a different nation and a different culture. So if we're going to understand what's going on, we need to do a little bit of study. We need to understand the, the situation. And the first thing that we need to understand is what they're talking about when they're talking about cities in this time in the land of Canaan. You have to understand, Canaan was an agrarian society. The vast majority of people were farmers. They lived on farms or in villages or maybe even towns, but not in cities. In fact, the word city, the Hebrew word for city here, like as in the city of Jericho or the city of Ai, that Hebrew word would be translated or best translated as fortress or military outpost. In other words, when we think of city, we think of houses and restaurants and businesses and schools and hospitals. 
But that wasn't the case for those cities. There was nothing in the city of Jericho except for a place for soldiers and a tavern, a hostel, a brothel. Because when soldiers were there, they wanted to drink beer and sometimes they wanted more than just to drink beer. But that's all that was in the cities. In fact, the, take the city of Jericho, for example. Lots of archaeological work has been done on the city of Jericho. And it turns out that, that archaeology has told us that Jericho was only six acres in size and had a capacity for about 1,200 soldiers. Richard Hess, the Old Testament scholar, has argued persuasively that there is probably in that day probably about 100 to 150 soldiers in the, in the city, in the, in, the, in the military garrison of Jericho. And the archaeological evidence backs this up. There was no archaeological evidence of any civilian population in Jericho. There were no women and children. There were only soldiers. The women and children lived in the countryside and they looked to the city for protection from the military that was stationed there. The exception, of course, was the prostitute and her family who ran the tavern. And it's telling that when the Israelite spies went to the tavern and she hid them there, that they promised that they would rescue her and her family from what was about to come to the city of Jericho. So, when the Israelites attacked the city of Jericho and totally destroyed it, it had nothing to do with killing innocent civilians. They were nowhere to be found. They had nothing to do with, uh, I mean, sorry, it just had to do with the total defeat of a military installation and the soldiers who were there. Second thing that you need to understand is the, the word king. You know, Joshua and the Israelites, you know, they killed this king and they defeated that king and they, they killed this king. It sounds to us like a king who is a political leader of a vast nation. But again, in the context of that day, that's not what it was. A king was a local leader who gave leadership to his troops. The title we would give someone like that today is the title general. But they captured and what they killed were generals who were leading their armies against the, the army of Israel. And then the third thing you need to understand and to be aware of is that the way that they used numbers in the ancient world is a little bit tricky. For example, the Hebrew word uh, that's commonly translated thousand, when it's used in a military context, often simply means a unit or a squad. So when it comes to those killed in battle, sometimes when we read it in English, it, it gives us a wrong impression of how many people were actually killed in battle. So for example, if you read about the attack on the city of Ai, where 12,000 people were killed in the battle, you know, a better way of understanding that was that it was actually 12 squadrons or 12, 12, uh, yeah, 12 squadrons of soldiers that were defeated. And in that case, the archaeologists say that it's probably about 10 soldiers per squadron, meaning that it's probably more like 100 to 150 soldiers who were killed in that battle. You have to understand that the ancient people were not so concerned with statistical accuracy as we are. Instead, their goal was to give a general sense of how the whole thing went. And that's not being misleading. That was their cultural way of thinking about it. So, 
when you begin to understand the context of what was going on in the ancient setting, it becomes evident that Joshua and the Israelites were not invading cities and assassinating presidents and killing all kinds of civilians or even killing thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers. Instead, they were engaging military combatants, soldiers, and their generals in battle for control of these forts that controlled the entrance into the land of Canaan. That's what was going on. But that still raises the question, well, okay, but, 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 but what about, you know, the order to utterly destroy men and women, young and old? What about Joshua's claim that there were no survivors, that he totally destroyed all who breathed? I mean, what about that? Well, here again, it's important to understand the historical context. When God commanded them to destroy men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys, what he was saying is destroy everything that's there. Completely defeat them. That's just a phrase that meant everything. But, but they all understood that the women and children were long gone from, from the, the, the military fortresses. I mean, they'd gone and hid up in the hills while the armies did their fighting. And when he said, you know, leave no survivors, totally destroy all who breathe, what he actually means is don't kill. He's not saying kill everyone. What he's saying is make sure that you win a decisive victory. And, and, and I mean, let, let me give you an example to understand that. Let me see, let, let's suppose that 3,500 years from now, 3,500 years into the future, in another land, they begin to study about an ancient land and an ancient people who lived in a place called Canada. And as they begin to study, they realize that they have all kinds of strange rituals, like, like going weekly and sometimes daily to a temple called Tim Hortons. And that on occasion, several thousand of these Canadians would gather together and begin to yell and scream and chant as they gathered around a little patch of ice. Because apparently it's very cold in Canada. And when they did that, there was these two squadrons of men who would do battle with one another on that ice. And these squadrons gave themselves strange names like the Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks. And the battles that they engaged in were so violent that they would literally dress in armor from head to toe and they would give them big sticks to carry onto the ice. And now imagine that they began to read an account, a, 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 a newspaper account of one of those battles. And, and one of the guys from the teams, from, one of the guys from the Calgary Flames said, we're going to kill them. And you can imagine their eyes would get big and they would think they're, they're going to kill them. What? What kind of barbarous nation is this Canadians? And then let's say that after the game was over, the, the reporter interviewed and they read the interview uh, again of the Calgary Flames who, who said, we totally annihilated them. We destroyed them. We blew them away. They'd be like, oh my goodness. Wow. That's brutal. And then they say, we wiped the floor with them. They'd be like, ooh, that's gruesome. And they would be left with the, the, this idea that the Vancouver Canucks, as a, as a group of, of men, ceased to exist. I mean, there was just bodies all over the ice when this thing was done, which would have left them a little confused when they read that a week later, the Vancouver Canucks were in Calgary to battle again against the 
Calgary Flames, right? Now, of course, we know that all that kind of talk, we're going to kill them, we totally destroy them, we annihilated them, we wiped the floor with them. I mean, we know that's just trash talk, right? It simply means that one team won a decisive victory over another. And we know that it wasn't even like 15 nothing. It was probably like six to three. And that's what's happening here in the book of Joshua. It was a common practice of the day. For example, Egypt claimed in a great battle of the 15th century BC that they, quote, annihilated totally the great opposing army of Mitanni. And, and within the hour, actually, within a single hour, and they exterminated them fully, making them, quote, like those non-existent. That's what they wrote. But then you also find out that they battled that army for the next century. Or the Hittites, another ancient people, claimed to have, quote, emptied the mountains of humanity. But not at all. The people still live there. What they're saying is that they won a, a decisive victory over the people who lived in the mountains. And even the Moabites. Remember, these were famous, long-standing enemies of the people of Israel. At one point, they, in the 8th century BC, they defeated the people of Israel. And they proclaimed, the archaeologists have found it, they proclaimed this, Israel has utterly perished for always. Except for that Israel didn't. It went on for centuries after that. See, it's just how they talked in those days. It was military trash talk. And this is the case for Joshua too. You know, if you read on in the book of Joshua, just after he makes this claim that they left no survivors, nothing breathing, here's what you come to next. Judah, one of the clans of Israel, could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. And then this verse, and yet the Manassites, another clan of the of the people of Israel were not able to occupy these towns for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. And there are all kinds of verses like that. In fact, when you read about the life of King David, several centuries later, he's still fighting the Philistines who are de descendants of the Canaanites. You see, there was no genocide, no ethnic cleansing, not even the killing of women and children. God would never tolerate something like that. That's not who he is at all. Instead, what he commanded the Israelites to do was to trust him as they engaged a superior military force of the Canaanites. And as God gave them a resounding victory on the battlefield against other combatants, that's what happened. Now, sometimes these days, people still say, well, yeah, but isn't religion the source of so much violence and war in our world today? I mean, look at the Crusades. Look at the Spanish Inquisition. Look at the, the wars that were fought in the Middle Ages, the religious wars in Europe. Doesn't that point to the fact that religion is dangerous and, and leads to violence? I mean, doesn't it mean that we need less religion in the world and more enlightenment thinking? Well, those are interesting questions. You know, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the, the, the religious wars of the Middle Ages, those were wrong. Those were evil. And you know, as Christians, we should roundly and gladly condemn exactly those things that happened. But they're not a reflection at all of the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. And to suggest that 
that somehow the primary source of violence in the world is religion today is to misunderstand the simple historical facts. You know, uh, U.S. foreign policy expert Walter Russell Mead studied the civilian deaths coming out of 30 years of the last century. He, he studied civilian deaths from 1940 when World War II began till the end of 1960s, early 70s, when uh, the Vietnam War ended. And here's, here's what he found. Here's what he writes regarding World War II. He says this, more German civilians died in the three-night firebombing of Dresden than American soldiers died in all of World War I. At the time, the Dresden raids constituted the largest slaughter of civilians by military forces in one place since the campaign of Genghis Khan. And again about World War II, he writes this. In the last five months of World War II, American bombings killed more than 900,000 Japanese civilians, not counting the casualties from atomic strikes against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was more than twice the number of all combatant deaths, 400,000 plus, the United States suffered in all its foreign wars combined. And of the Korean War, he writes this, out of a pre-war population of 9.49 million, an estimated 1 million North Korean civilians are believed to have died as a result of the actions of American forces during the 1950-53 conflict there. Almost 34,000 American soldiers were killed during the Korean War, meaning that the U.S. forces killed approximately 30 North Korean civilians for every American soldier who died. And of the Vietnam War, he writes this. Some 365,000 Vietnamese civilians are believed to have died as a result of the war during the period of American involvement. This would mean a ratio of eight Vietnamese civilian deaths to every American killed in the war. Sobering statistics. And remember that he's not, comparing, he's not comparing combatant to combatant. He's not comparing soldier to soldier. He's comparing soldier to civilian. The language of utterly destroy, show no mercy, do not leave alive anything that breathes, actually sounds more like modern warfare than it does like the exaggerated trash talk of the people of Israel. The kind of casualties and killings that are done today make what happened with Israel seem like child's play. You know, it's fascinating. We tend to hold the ancients to a higher standard than we would hold ourselves, right? It's easier to try to, to pull the, the speck out of their eye for what they did than to, to deal with the plank in our own eye. What God commanded Israel to do when he invaded Canaan when they invaded Canaan, turned out to be much more humane and way less bloody than anything that happens in modern warfare today. And don't be fooled to thinking that modern warfare today isn't done in its own religious way. I mean, the gods are still around. They just go by different names. The wars of the last century were fought in the name of communism, capitalism, nationalism, free markets, blood and soil, the will of the people, the sovereignty of the state. I mean, the ancients used their gods to justify their wars, but in the modern world, we use our ideologies, just gods by a different kind of a name. And fascinatingly, it was not the addition of religion that led to the bloodiest century in human history, but rather the abandonment of it. 
David Bentley Hart writes this. We live in the wake of the most monstrously violent century in human history, during which the secular order, on both the political right and the political left, freed from the authority of religion, showed itself willing to kill on an unprecedented scale and with an ease of conscience worse than merely depraved. If ever an age deserved to be thought an age of darkness, it is surely our own. You know, the historical facts point clearly to the fact that it is the abandonment of belief in the God of the Bible, not the belief itself, that has led to the most profound influence on the kind of violence and war that we experience in the world today. Have evil things and wickedness been done in the name of Jesus? Oh, absolutely. Should it be roundly condemned? Without question. But does it reflect the heart of the Christian faith? Not even close. Not even close. The Christian faith doesn't promote violence or evil in any way. If people have done that, it's because, in Jesus' name, it's because they have taken and twisted and manipulated what the Bible teaches, not because it's what it actually teaches. I mean, look at Jesus. He stands in chains before Pilate, the Roman governor, who was the representative of the oppression of Rome over the people of Israel. And here's what he says to him. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. In another place, he said this, those who use the sword will die by the sword. You see, the heart of the Christian faith is, about, is, is, is not about violence. I mean, not even close. The heart of the Christian faith is about bringing change and transformation through love and self-sacrifice. And you say this brilliantly displayed in the lives of people like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil rights movement in the 1960s in the South, who faced up against evil and, and wrongdoing, not with violence, but with peace, with nonviolence. You see it in the life of someone like William Wilberforce, who, who was a deeply committed Christian with a very practical faith, who, who actively sought the eradication of the slave trade. Again, a great cost to himself, but with no violence in any way. You see it in the lives of people like Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa, who transformed the world around them through love and through self-sacrifice and through giving. You see it in the lives of millions and millions of Christians around the world and throughout history who have, thought, who have sought change and transformation in the world around them, not through violence or force, but through love and, and service and giving. And all of them following in the footsteps of their Savior, of Jesus. I mean, he's the ultimate example. He, he died on the cross in our place, he, his willingness to take on the, the wrath that was due to us for our rebellion against God. Even while we were still in rebellion against God, his, his patient love for us, as he invites us to enter into a relationship with God, that, that's the heart of Jesus. That, that's the heart of God the Father who sends Jesus into the world. You see, the Bible reveals to us not an angry or a vindictive or a violent God at all. Instead, it tells us about a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, but one who also stands up for the weak and the exploited and, the, and the, those who are taken advantage of. But one who, in the end, sends his own son to suffer and to die through his weakness or apparent weakness so that we might find new life. You see, that's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we follow. 
Let me ask you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Well, God, we, we wrestle with a big topic today. God, we wrestle with a, a difficult topic. And yet God is fascinating that when we dig deep, when we actually see what your word says, it turns out that you are a good God and a gracious God and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and that you're patient. God, may we be people who study your word carefully, who come to know you well, who understand deeply what you're about. And God, may we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. May we live the way that he calls us to live. May we seek to see you work in the world around us through love and through giving and through serving the people around us and through giving of ourselves, God, so that your kingdom will come. Not a kingdom of this world, not a political kingdom, nothing to do with violence, but God, a kingdom of hope and life and love. And so we give, yourselves, or we give ourselves to you again this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming today and joining us. I uh, hope you've been encouraged as we wrestle with what the Word of God says and how we ought to live our lives. Let me send you today with these words, again, from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his precious peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.